Good evening, everyone. Um, yes, my, my camera is now on as well. So what I was trying to achieve and set out to do with this new book was explore all the different fundamental aspects of us as an animal species, of our humanness, whether that's our genetics or our physiology and our anatomy or our psychology and weird glitches in our processing, so-called cognitive biases. And what I want to do for you tonight is pick out just one of the stories um, from that book, which is a story about the human family and the effects that that's had through human history. And over the course of our evolutionary lineage, from when we diverged from the common ancestor with the chimpanzees around seven million years ago, there's been two major themes or trends in our evolution. We developed to be bipedal, so walking upright on two legs. And we also developed to be big brained with greater and greater intelligence that gave us our capabilities for language and communication or tool use and inventing technologies or working together and cooperating in these huge ventures, um, which led up to development of civilization itself. But these two biological adaptations, being bipedal and being big brained, are mutually exclusive and direct conflict with each other. And the modifications to the human pelvis enabling bipedalism limits the size of the hole in the pelvis that the birth canal that the skull of the baby can pass through. So you can see at the bottom of the slide here, what's known as the midwife's view of the pelvis. And the human species today exists right at the cusp of those two mutually exclusive design principles. We, we couldn't develop to be any more intelligent without the skull getting stuck in the birth canal. And the solution hit upon by evolution was to extend the human developmental process long after birth, after we emerged from the womb. So although all mammals are fed by their mother, and in fact, the, the name for that class of animals uh, comes from the Latin word for breast from, from mama, human babies and, and, and then infants are enormously vulnerable for several years after they're born, dependent on uh, for movement, for protection, for being fed. And so in our evolution, it arose that the woman herself, the mother herself, could no longer rear a child sufficiently. And it needed the assistance of the father as well for child rearing, what's known as biparental investment. And, and that's pretty rare within the animal kingdom. And that biparental investment requires what's effectively a biological contract for reproduction. The woman needs to be confident that the man will stick around through those vulnerable years of child rearing and, and provide the resources and assistance which is needed. And in turn, the man needs to be confident in the relationship and that he is in fact the father of that child when he devotes the time and resources towards rearing it. And the solution that evolution hit upon is known as pair bonding. There's a deep link forged between mother and father, and we experience that as romantic love. Now, that pair bond is mediated by a hormone called oxytocin. And oxytocin does a whole range of things in mammalian 
reproduction. It triggers the contractions of the uterus through childbirth itself. It stimulates lactation and the production of milk, and it forms a strong bond between the mother and child. And in humans, that oxytocin bond was then extended to join the mother and father as well. And so the practice of marriage is no more than a cultural institution built on top of that biological foundation of pair bonding. And at the core of human extended networks or relatives is that tight bond between parents and children, i.e. The, the human family. So as a consequence of human evolution to become both bipedal and big-brained, the solution of pair bonding gave rise to both romantic love and the human family. And with the emergence of agriculture and the ability to accumulate resources, whether that's the grain that you've harvested or the livestock that you keep, came the concept of wealth and claims over territory. And so we came to inherit not just physical traits from our parents, things like our eye colour, but now also um, wealth and territory and the status and influence that they afford. So inheritable power gave rise to monarchy and ruling dynasties and succession of the absolute power from one individual to the next within the same family, down the generations, produced a deep link between kinship, between relations and kingship, between absolute power. So within these ruling dynasties that emerged, these fundamental aspects of our biology, of, of reproduction, of pair bonding, family, took on a whole new level of significance. Marriage wasn't just a union between two individuals, but it came to represent the tying together of two powerful families. And strategic marriages were used as a political tool to secure peace or, or cement alliances. And the children born of that marriage intertwined the bloodlines of both dynasties and were able to inherit both kingdoms, both crowns. So the human imperatives of pair bonding and reproduction became tools of statecraft. And one of the most influential royal dynasties in European modern history over the centuries were the Habsburgs. And they had relatively humble beginnings in the Duchy of Swabia, in what is today uh, northern Switzerland. And they're able to manoeuvre themselves to become the de facto inheritable crown of the Holy Roman Empire in, in parts of Germany and then Central Europe. And then the Habsburg king, Maximilian I, began this mastermind scheme of strategic royal marriages with other kingdoms all across Europe, starting with his own marriage in 1477 to the heiress of the Duchy of Burgundy, which acquired for the Habsburgs parts of France and the Low Counties. He then arranged for his son to marry the heiress of both Castile and Aragon, and therefore their son came to rule over a unified Spain, as well as parts of southern Italy, Sardinia and Sicily. And Maximilian also arranged for his grandson to marry Isabella of Portugal in 15. 26. So within just 50 years, within just two generations of carefully plotted marriages, the Habsburgs had accumulated over half 
of Europe. And this was more or less bloodlessly through dynastic marriages and the absorption of crowns. They were absolute grandmasters of the game of thrones. But this period also coincided with the beginning of the European age of exploration and conquest. And so you can see on the bottom map here, all the territories around the world that at some point were ruled by this Habsburg family, although not all at, at the same time. And that's parts of the uh, Americas with the Spanish and Portuguese conquests, uh, territories along the African coast and India, uh, the Spice Islands, the Philippines uh, were claimed by the explorer Magellan and named after Philip II of Spain. And you might notice from this map that even England for a short period fell into the Habsburg domain when Philip II married Queen Mary I in 1554. So the arms of this one family encircled the entire planet. In the early 16th century, Charles V became the first ruler in history to reign over an empire upon which the sun never set. Um, but on his death, this single dominion was divided between his son and his brother, creating the Spanish Habsburg dynasty and the central European branch of the family. And it's within the Spanish Habsburg dynasty that this program of strategic royal marriages had a particularly acute biological blowback. And the problem here is that consanguineous marriages between related royal families not only reinforces political power, but that inbreeding over the generations also reduces genetic variation and consolidates defective genes. So the very means of their ascendancy held the seeds for the catastrophic downfall of the Spanish Habsburgs. And out of, out of a total of 11 marriages in the line of kings, leading down to Charles II, nine of them were consanguineous, including between first cousins and the, the even creepier union between an uncle and his niece, so that the degree of inbreeding increased tenfold over the two, two centuries, separating the founding of the Spanish Habsburg dynasty with Philip II and Charles II. Now, the most um, visible, most conspicuous trait of the Habsburg dynasty was in their face. They had a long humped nose with an overhanging tip, a, a bulbous, drooping lower lip. So much so that uh, Leopold I, who was Holy Roman Empire, um, sorry, sorry, Holy Roman Emperor in the second half of the 17th century, was very unkindly nicknamed in Austria as Fotzenpoidl, which you could translate as vagina face. Uh, but most noticeably within this family was a sharply jutting lower jaw, so pronounced that the top and lower rows of teeth no longer met each other, that the Spanish Habsburgs had trouble even chewing and eating their food. And this is the so-called Habsburg jaw. So the picture you can see here on the left-hand side is Maximilian I, who was the, the architect of this grand scheme of strategic royal marriages. And on the right-hand side is his great, 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 great grandson, uh, Charles II, showing this very pronounced Habsburg jaw. And this Habsburg jaw is known to have been caused 
down the generations of inbreeding. But there were far more severe consequences for the Habsburgs. And the dynasty started suffering increasingly from epilepsy and other mental health issues, as well as a string of miscarriages and stillbirths. So this royal family, one of the most privileged and pampered in the entire world, with access to the best nutrition and healthcare available at the time, suffered an overall infant mortality rate of around 80%, which was around four times higher than a Spanish peasant family at the same time. And so for the Spanish Habsburgs, everything came to a head with Charles II, who was known as El Echizado, the Hexed or the Cursed, due to his many severe afflictions from a whole host of genetic disorders. And he was never fit to rule as king. And so first his mother and then his second wife acted as regent on his behalf. And the only thing that the dynasty and the kingdom needed from him was that most fundamental of biological functions, which was simply to reproduce, just create an heir. So at least the dynasty can continue into the next generation. But despite two marriages, Charles II never had any children. And it seems quite clear that he was congenitally incapable of doing so. So these generations of inbreeding and the mounting genetic disorders in the Spanish dynasty had finally collapsed. The, the Spanish Habsburg dynasty had driven itself to extinction. And with the death of Charles II in 1700, the crisis triggered the War of Spanish Succession and ultimately a great shift in the political landscape of Europe. So what we've got here in this particular story is a long chain of cause and effect, going right back to the fundamentals of our biology in terms of our evolution towards being bipedal and brainy and the evolutionary solution to that in terms of pair bonding and family, which gave rise to the inheritance of power and royal dynasties. And as we've just seen in the Spanish Habsburg dynasty, the biological blowback from that strategy of royal marriages. That's just one story uh, from the book. There's plenty of others uh, in Being Human. I've given a couple of examples here, which are basically the, the clickbait from the book. So if any of that uh, has been of interest, uh, pick up a copy of the book. Um, I understand there's no questions as part of this 5 by 15 event, but by all means, feel welcome to tweet me, uh, send a tweet uh, or ping me an email if there's anything that you're curious about. But thank you ever so much for coming along tonight and listening.